2: Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Can you believe that we're in the first week of February already? By now, you should have a plan for this year. But if you're like me, you've been way too busy over the last couple of weeks and you haven't done a thing. You haven't done your vision board for this year. You haven't planned out what the year's going to look like. <sighs> I know. Well... I'm going to catch up and it's not too late for you to catch up too. So let's get back on track. February is the new January and we're going to get back on it. This week, we're not going to talk about New Year's resolutions. Although I have been hinting to that for the past month, we're going to talk a bit about small babies because the last episode I was talking, I was like, Oh, I can't believe I haven't done an episode on this. Although people ask about it all the time. So we're going to talk about it today. Ideally, no one really wants their baby to be small, right? Everyone wants to have a baby that's at the 50th percentile, born at 39 weeks, weighing seven pounds, nine ounces. Yeah, I know that's everybody wants that, but that's not reality. Every baby is different and every pregnancy is different. So we shouldn't compare pregnancies or babies for that matter. As a physician, when I say fetal growth restriction um, or small baby, what I mean is that your baby is less than the 10th percentile for gestational age, meaning we put babies on a scale of one to a 100, with one being the smallest baby and a 100 being the biggest baby. Those who rank in the bottom 10, so one through 10, are the small babies that we need to keep an eye on. Now, small babies can be small just to be small because mom and dad are small. We call that constitutionally small. So for example, I'm four feet, 11 inches. My husband who lies all the time and says that he's 5'10 is really five, nine and a half. So of course, naturally, I'm not gonna have a big ginormous nine pound baby, right? Harrison was six pounds, 2.2 ounces. So he was normal, but on the smaller end of normal, okay? Now there are certain ethnicities that tend to be smaller than average or on the smaller side of normal, specifically those of Asian descent. However, because there's no growth scale that breaks growth restriction down by ethnicity, we have to compare all babies on the same scale. So we can't say, hey, if the mom is 4'11, we can put the baby on this scale. Or if the mom is 6'1, we can put the baby on that scale. Nope, all babies are compared to the same exact scale. A baby's growth is controlled by a number of factors. Okay, and moms, unfortunately, you have very little control over any of these factors except for one. One, genetics. So babies will follow the genes that he or she is given. You can't control what genes you give your baby unless that is you go and get a donor egg or donor sperm and then you try to get that specific gene pool, okay? Otherwise, if you're talking about your own genetics, you really can't control that. You have your uterine environment, which is the placenta or the afterbirth. The placenta is basically the command center for the uterus and the pregnancy. It controls the oxygen and the nutrients your baby receives. So if there are issues with uterine implantation or how the placenta adheres to the inside wall of the uterus, then your baby might not be getting adequate oxygen and nutrition outside environment now moms this is what you control the outside environment things like smoking alcohol and even medications you take that can impact the growth of your baby those things you can control all the other stuff mm -mm, can't control it can't control it now there are conditions that increase your risk of having smaller babies, okay? Now, some of these conditions you, you can't control, right? You don't like tell yourself you want high blood pressure, but you can control the control of your blood pressure. And so that's one of the number one conditions that can impact the baby, is mom having high blood pressure and that high blood pressure not being well controlled. Even if your blood pressure is super well controlled, people that have high blood pressure have a higher risk of having smaller babies because the blood pressure is obviously a vascular process. So the vessels are more constricted and therefore the uterus, which carries the baby, may not be getting adequate blood flow. Things like diabetes, if you have uncontrolled diabetes, that sometimes makes your baby really, really big Because glucose or blood sugar can just readily cross over to the baby. But if you have things like type one diabetes, where you may have a lower blood glucose level a lot of the times, some of those people have smaller babies. If you have severe anemia, if you're anemic, then the amount of blood that's going to the baby is going to also uh, be lower as well. So severe anemia can also impact your baby's growth. Poor nutrition in the mom, which causes poor weight gain. Now, even people that are morbidly obese, meaning you have a BMI over, um, over thirty, if you're obese, and people say, "Oh well, I'm, I'm a bigger girl, so I shouldn't gain weight in pregnancy." Well, that's a lie. Okay, even people that are obese should gain somewhere between eleven and twenty pounds. Go back and listen to the episode on obesity. You still have to gain weight. And so if you're not gaining enough weight, if you're not eating well-balanced meals, then that could be a reason that your baby's small. Now, mind you, babies take from you first and leave you with the leftovers. So we start to see moms lose weight and have signs of poor nutrition, meaning they're super lethargic, they're super you know, fatigued and they're sleeping all the time. They may have nausea and vomiting. We see those things first before we start to see a lag in a baby. And the nutrients have to be extremely depleted for it to impact the baby, okay? Autoimmune conditions such as thyroid disease, lupus, those can impact the vasculature, again, and that can control and affect the blood flow to the uterus, which then in turn can um, impact how much blood is getting to the placenta. If you have long-term kidney problems, again, that's a vascular process. And then smoking and drug use, That's the thing you can control. (laughs) You can control that. So don't smoke, don't use drugs because there's all these other factors, right? That impact the baby. Basically, any condition that affects blood flow or your blood vessels can impact blood flow to the uterus, which in turn affects the function of the placenta. Now, some babies exposed to infections like COVID-19, like the flu, can also... Be smaller, okay, and then there's all these other types of infection we call torch infections, which I'm pretty sure I've talked about in a couple of episodes in the past. But there are things like herpes simplex virus that can cross the placenta, parvovirus, which which uh or slap cheek disease, which daycare age kids get that virus, and also dogs can carry parvovirus. Well, that virus can readily cross the placenta and cause fetal or your baby to have anemia because it, it can attack uh, the bone marrow and other viruses attack the red blood cells of your baby. Um, so there are certain infections that we have to watch out for. And if we see signs of infection, then some of those infections can be treated while inside of the uterus and some cannot, okay? Um, you could have, your baby could have structural defects like a heart defect or a brain defect that can also tend to make a baby smaller. If your baby's brain isn't developing normally, the size of the head can be smaller. And therefore the overall size of the baby is going to be less because the size of the head is included in the calculation of estimated fetal weight. Likewise, if the heart has a defect, if blood isn't pumping out of the heart efficiently, then oxygen is not delivered to the rest of the baby and that can in turn make a baby's growth stunted, okay? Your provider might become suspicious of growth restriction upfront if your fundal height or the measurement from the pubic bone, like right above where the hairline is, all the way up to the top of your belly, so where the curve of your baby bump is, if that measurement is lagging by three centimeters or more, this will prompt your provider to get an ultrasound. So why is three centimeters a more important? Because the size of your uterus should always go directly with the gestational age you are in centimeters. So if you're 27 weeks, the size of your uterus, so from pubic symphysis all the way up to the curve, the top of the curve of your uterus or your belly should be around 27 centimeters plus or minus three. And if it's three or more, then we're like, ah, maybe we've overestimated or underestimated this baby. If it's three or less, then we're like, okay, why is her 27-week belly really measuring 24 weeks? So we know that the baby may be smaller. So then your provider will get an ultrasound. So without an ultrasound, we can't say that there's growth restriction during pregnancy, okay? The fundal height can be very, very inaccurate because it depends on how the baby's lying and the habitus uh, and how you're carrying your baby, okay? Okay. So on ultrasound, we take several measurements to evaluate the size of the baby. And then we look at the organs to also make sure there are no defects. Like I talked about, if you have brain defects or heart defects or kidney defects, these things can impact the the way the baby grows. And then we also make sure that the baby's growth restricted, meaning, hey, this looks like an overall small baby and everything is... Uh, proportionate or the belly size is small which is usually the first thing to become small in a truly growth restricted baby versus you having a skeletal dysplasia or a little person okay because little people are small too in utero okay so there's a difference between those and they're still small babies now if you are having a smaller baby your provider will send you to a high-risk specialist like me And you will need to be seen frequently, like every one to two weeks, to monitor the blood flow through the umbilical cord um, from the placenta. And we call that the umbilical artery dopplers, okay? And once you've been going week by week, you'll hear your OB shorten that or your MFM shorten that to just dopplers. We need to do dopplers on you. So when we say we need to do dopplers on you, we really mean umbilical artery dopplers. Now we may do some other... Dopplers, meaning looking at the blood flow through the brain, that's to look for what's called cephalization. So, if your baby has uh, severely uh, is severely anemic or is severely impacted, meaning the blood flow through the umbilical cord is just not adequate, okay, and the baby is at risk for not making it. We start to look for signs of what's called cephalization. So, it's almost like if you um, if you get shot or you Cut yourself or you're bleeding, okay? Your body is going to naturally shunt blood to the heart and the brain. Why? Because they're the most vital organ. So you want to save those first. And as a result, your body doesn't perfuse your limbs as adequate as they would normally perfuse it because you are in a state of shock and so you're trying to save the things that are vital same concept happens to the baby that's small the baby's not getting adequate blood flow the first thing we start to see is cephalization your body is going to start shunting blood more blood to the brain okay and so we're going to start seeing more diastolic flow in the brain and if we see that then that's a sign that hey these umbilical artery dopplers, or the blood flow through the umbilical cord, will become abnormal at some point, and this person really does need to be seen every single week. And we usually see the signs of the cephalization before the blood flow that impacts really the baby, which is the umbilical cord blood flow, becomes abnormal, okay? Now, depending on when growth restriction is diagnosed and how bad the blood flow through the umbilical cord is, that will tell us if we need to deliver you early. All small babies need to be delivered a tiny bit early, but some may need to be delivered very early if we see evidence of severe compromise and if we think that your baby is at risk for stillbirth. And I'm not trying to scare you, this is just to give you information so that you know exactly why it's important for you to be seen frequently if in fact you have a small baby. All right, so now that we know a little bit more about growth restriction, let's go to some cases.
3: Our first case is a 37-year-old who is 29 weeks pregnant with her first child. She was informed that her baby is small by another provider and that she needs to be followed weekly for evaluation of blood flow through the umbilical cord. So far, the umbilical artery blood flow has been normal, but she was also informed that she will need to deliver at 37 weeks. The patient would like to go into labor naturally, so she wants to stay pregnant as long as possible. Therefore, she presents for a second opinion.
2: You know, I always commend people that get second opinions. You know, I feel like a second opinion is a boss move, unless it's it's in a dire emergency. Like somebody saying, you have to be delivered right now because the baby's going to pass away, and you hear that the heartbeat is low because you've been following pregnancy pearls and Dr. Plenty told you that the heart rate should be between 120 and 160 and you see yourself, hey, it's 100. And you know, like that's the time you don't really need a second opinion. But if they're not telling you, hey, you need to be delivered right now and you're 29 weeks and you know you have another six weeks before you need to be delivered. Oh yes, you can seek a second opinion. That's completely fine. If you are not completely convinced that the situation um, is as serious as it is, it's it never hurts to get a second opinion. Even if patients I have want a second opinion, I will say, oh yeah, sure. Who do you want to go to? And I will help you find, I will help you get in because you have to feel comfortable and confident in the information that you're given. So it's okay to seek a second opinion or make them explain it to you in a way that you understand it, okay? I always tell people never leave out of my office with questions. I always get your questions answered. In this situation, uh, it depends on how small your baby is. So if your baby is 29 weeks, there's no evidence of a skeletal dysplasia, meaning you're not having a little person. You have a baby that has a smaller abdominal circumference, but the rest of the baby is also smaller, okay? But proportionately small. Then I would say, this is growth restriction. If your baby is less than a third percentile, then I would agree, 37 weeks is when you need to deliver. Now, if your baby's less than the 10th percentile and the blood flow through the umbilical cord is completely normal, then they could push you to 38 or 39 weeks if everything is perfect. Now, people think, oh, the doctors are normal and my baby's at the eighth percentile. So I'm gonna go and call my OB and say, I listened to Pregnancy pearls with Dr. Plenty and she said that I don't need to be delivered. At 37 weeks, y'all, y'all have done this to me, okay? I have OBs texting me, telling me their people have listened and they don't need to be delivered. <laughs> oh, okay, so I don't know the whole picture is what I have to say, okay? So if you're less than the third percentile, I don't care what else is going on. The baby needs to come out by 37 weeks. If you are above the third percentile, but you have other comorbidities that could get you delivered at 37 weeks, we can't forget about everything else that's going on. You remember the growth restriction, but you didn't remember the fact that you had high blood pressure or that you had uncontrolled diabetes or that you have lupus nephritis. Like there are reasons that you need to be delivered at 37 weeks other than just the baby being small. So if you have a small baby, plus you have other uh, comorbidities, then I would agree, even if you're not less than the third percentile, or excuse me, the baby isn't, then you would still need to be delivered at 37 weeks. But if you're like, everything is perfect, my blood pressure is perfect, I have no medical problems, this is the only issue I have with this pregnancy, then I agree, talk to your OB if you're over the third percentile and say, hey, is there a way that I can be pushed to 38 or 39 weeks? You can't go past 39 weeks with growth restriction. Okay, no, no. Growth restriction does not go past 39 weeks. It doesn't matter if the baby's at the 9.9 percentile. You need to be delivered at, 39 weeks. Okay. No later, but I agree. Severe 37 weeks. And if you don't know whether it's severe or not, ask your provider, is this severe or not? Now, let me tell you what would get you delivered before 37 weeks. Let's say you go at 32 weeks and I'm not speaking this on you. This is just an example. If the blood flow becomes abnormal at 32 weeks, that will be a reason for you to deliver at 34 weeks. So if you have evidence of absent end diastolic flow, meaning there's little intermittent episodes where the baby's not getting any blood flow, then 34 weeks would be where you would need to be delivered, okay, because there's a higher risk of stillbirth. If we ever start to see blood moving from the baby back toward the placenta, that's called reversal of flow. And that tells us that you need to be delivered even at the time that we diagnose that, okay, even. Because if we wait, we can end up with a very poor outcome, meaning a baby that has been severely compromised or even worse, a stillbirth, okay? I don't gamble with severely growth-restricted babies, okay? We didn't work too hard to get you the 37 weeks to end up with a stillbirth at 38 weeks with a severely growth-restricted baby. And that's why we get, it, get the baby out right at 37 weeks because something inside is telling us, hey, this baby, the placenta is not working, and we're termed now, so this baby is better outside getting oxygen than staying inside starving for oxygen, okay? So let's not gamble after that 37th week. The case pearl for this case is babies with severe growth restriction have a high risk of stillbirth. Therefore, delivery is recommended at 37 weeks. All right, what's our second case?
3: Our second case is a 22-year-old who is 34 weeks pregnant with her second child. Her first pregnancy was normal and full term. She had no complications and delivered vaginally. This pregnancy, her baby is very small. The legs and arms are small and haven't really increased in size over the last few ultrasounds. The size of the head is normal. She had genetic screening and it returned with a high risk of osteogenesis imperfecta. She presents for further evaluation and management.
2: Osteogenesis imperfecta is a skeletal dysplasia, meaning it is a a defect, it's caused by a defect usually in the call 1A1 gene, which controls bone and collagen formation. And this is usually something that's inherited. Um, However, it can be what's called a de novo mutation, meaning it can all of a sudden happen. And the reason I say that is because osteogenesis imperfecta usually one of the parents has to be a carrier for that or has to have the disease basically for uh, their baby to also have osteogenesis imperfecta and if the parents are unaffected then we know that this is a de novo mutation now there are several different types of osteogenesis imperfecta now most of the time people that carry babies to 34 weeks um, and only have you know small limbs and nothing else is impacted. Usually have a very mild form of osteogenesis imperfecta. But there is a there are lethal types of osteogenesis imperfecta um, that cause under, severely underdevelopment of the ribs, um, underdevelopment of the chest, and as a result, the lungs will not develop, and therefore the baby can't be oxygenated. So that's uh, that's how those babies don't survive outside of the womb. Um, secondly babies with osteogenesis imperfecta do have an increased risk of stillbirth as do all skeletal dysplasias. Now, there are thousands of skeletal dysplasias and there are several different types of osteogenesis imperfecta within that subtype of skeletal dysplasia. Out of the, out of the skeletal dysplasias, this one, OI or osteogenesis imperfecta, causes brittle bones, okay? And so some people just say brittle bone disease. And their baby has brittle bone disease. And as a result, Babies are usually born with skull fractures. They can be born with fractures of their uh, their limbs. Um, they can be born with rib fractures. And the type of delivery, meaning a vaginal delivery versus a C-section, doesn't change the fact that the baby will get fractures. So we usually still deliver these babies vaginally. The only time we don't deliver the babies vaginally with, with OI is if the mom has OI because we don't want her to get a pelvic fracture, right? Because she has brittle bone disease too. So we would do a C-section on moms with osteogenesis imperfecta. But if the mom is unaffected and the baby's affected, we would still allow them to get uh, vaginal deliveries. With the baby having a genetic screen, I'm wondering if that's a confirmatory test. So I would offer confirmatory testing with an amniocentesis and sending it for, Uh, a dysplasia panel specifically for a one a one mutation to see the type of osteogenesis imperfecta this is, uh, and, or if it's not OI to talk about, to screen for other more common um, skeletal dysplasias. And I will counsel the mom further. Now, babies with skeletal dysplasias are handled rather differently, right? Because they're small, but do they, really need dopplers every week okay different mfms are going to say different things so for me i know that the baby's small but it's not because of the placenta so it's not because there's you know, inadequate blood flow. So I see these babies every couple of weeks instead of weekly um, just to monitor them and keep an eye. We can see evidence of fractures even in the uterus of some babies with skeletal dysplasia. So we wanna see like, is the leg already broken? We wanna know what's broken before delivery versus after delivery. We also wanna make sure that we do an echo on this baby to see what the heart function is to make sure there's no... Um, nothing affected because we know that babies with skeletal dysplasia do have a higher risk of heart defects. Um, and then I would also want the ba- the mom to get a consultation with our neonatologist to make sure that this mom is going to be delivered at a place that can take care of her baby. And once we ensure that that's the right place, that they can take care of a baby with osteogenesis, then I would uh, have them talk to her about what should she expect from a baby with osteogenesis imperfecta. Most babies with skeletal dysplasias have completely normal cognition, right? S- smart as a whip. They're not affected mentally. Um, it is uh, the motor skills that are affected because of course their bones are not growing. Um, they're mo- or at least not at the rate that a normal baby and then toddler and then adolescent would. So uh, most of those babies may need multiple surgeries to repair those long bone fractures and could need physical therapy and could need support of their pelvis because they have an increased risk of falling and having pelvic fractures. So although the baby's cognition is normal, the motor skills are what we would need to work on uh, in childhood. But for the pregnancy, I'll follow her closely every couple of weeks check the growth, offer genetics uh, confirmatory testing with the genetic amniocentesis, and make sure she has a genetic consultation with a geneticist to talk about anything that would be inherited from the family that we may not know of, and talk about what to expect for the baby's um, offspring. Because people wanna know like, oh, can my baby have children and things like that? Well, yeah. But let me tell you what's going to happen and how how the fertility will be impacted for the offspring. The case pro for this case is skeletal dysplasias are very, very rare, but should be suspected with very early growth restriction, usually before 24 weeks, especially if the long bones are shorter. All right, medical intern, what's our email case for the day?
3: Our email case says, Dr. Plenty, I was told that my baby was smaller than normal, and informed that I need weekly umbilical artery dopplers and an early delivery. I was wondering if there's anything that I can do to help increase the weight of my baby.
2: Let me start by saying, you know, most women come in with their significant other, and I tell them that their baby's small. And the first thing either the patient or the husband says is, you know, what can we eat to cause our baby to increase in size, you know? as if they've done something wrong. Like, what do we do wrong? How can we reverse this, right? And there's nothing that you did wrong. You know, there's nothing that you did wrong. No one wants to hear something about their pregnancy um, in terms of the size of their baby. They always want to think, well, I must not be eating enough. I'm eating for two, but I'm too full. Y'all, it doesn't work like that. Mom, stop beating yourselves up. You did not do anything To cause this baby to be small. And there is nothing you can do besides maintain your nutrition to help the baby grow. You cannot eat eat a baby out of growth restriction. Like, that's not how this works. You should be eating frequent meals throughout the day. We should all be eating, even if you're not pregnant, we should all be eating frequent meals throughout the day to keep our metabolism hot. We don't do that, especially in America. We don't do that, but we should. We should be eating breakfast a snack, lunch, a snack, dinner, a snack, okay? That's how we should be eating, okay? That keeps our metabolism high. That stops us from overeating and overindulging. And we should also be drinking plenty of water a day, okay? We should be drinking a lot of water a day. 64 ounces of water is what you should be drinking when you're not pregnant, and 80 to 100 ounces of water is what you should be drinking when you are pregnant. So once you're doing that, and it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm eating huge meals. Okay. When you're pregnant, you're only supposed to increase your caloric intake by 300 more calories a day. Y'all, that's a small fry. It's one extra small fry you're supposed to be eating uh when you're pregnant versus not. Okay. So it's not that many extra calories you should be eating a day. When, when you're breastfeeding, you should be eating 500 more calories a day. As long as you're eating those frequent small meals throughout the day, that's really all that you can do. Okay. You need to well-balanced, High protein diet. No, I'm not telling you to go drink any protein shakes. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> the The diet just needs to be well balanced. Meaning, you can't eat chocolate cake for every meal and brownies for every snack. You need to actually eat, you know, some greens on your plate, some protein on your plate, and a little carb. Okay, that's what you should be eating. And then your snack should be more high in carb and veggie. As a, I'm not excuse me, back back more high in protein and veggie and not so much in carbs, okay? After you've done that, that is really all that you can do. This is usually 9 times out of 10 if the baby's grow if the baby's structurally normal and we ruled out infection, then 9 times out of 10 it's the placenta. And man, wouldn't it be amazing if we could all say, "I want my implant my placenta to implant right there." But we can't. Okay? We can't control where the thing implants, so all we can do is deal with what we have and be monitored closely, so that we can, at the end of the day, get a healthy baby and a healthy mom. All right, I think that that's all of the cases and questions. And my medical intern is shaking her head, yes. So thank you guys so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearls podcast yet again. I hope that you learned more about having small babies, and if you liked what you learned please support by rating and commenting on the show on whatever platform you listen and share with your friends. Sharing is caring. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypros at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at Pregnancy underscore Pearls and Facebook at Pregnancy Pearls. And don't forget to catch up on the YouTube channel at YouTube.com for slash Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Pliny for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye. Questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production.
0: Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE.